Hi, I'm Frank Tessier Burns, and this is 360 North. People have been complaining about hydro in Ontario for years, but at least your town doesn't run on a diesel generator. About 15,000 people live on reserve in northwestern Ontario, and most of them have to rely on these generators for power. Diesel is actually the most expensive type of power in the province, and people pay anywhere between three and ten times more than the average hydro customer. And right now, there are houses sitting empty in these communities because these generators are already overloaded, and there are constant power outages. Margaret Kinekwanash is the CEO of Watenikinia Power, and she's working to connect most of these First Nations to the province's power grid in the next five years. Hi, this is Francis from the podcast. How are you? I'm good. So I guess just to open, in doing some reading, um, it's going to show my ignorance, but I didn't realize how, I guess, interconnected this project and its importance to other factors like housing and things like that. I'm wondering if you can expand a little bit how now we have these communities that are running at capacity and the generators are taxed that there can't be any more development. Uh, yeah, there's two driving forces for Watanigan, yeah. Uh, one is based on the need for reliable power. The other one is to uh, develop control and own a uh, major infrastructure that's built within the uh, homelands. But with the existing situation of the 22 First Nations that own Watanigamia at 49%, 17 of them are not connected to the provincial grid. Mm-hmm. So of the 17, there's one community still in development and 10 of the communities are at capacity with their diesel generators. Okay. So usually what I tell people is when that happens, it's pretty much uh, the communities are not able to do anything. They are not able to connect any housing. They're not able to move on any other initiatives that they may have. Yeah, I guess they're just kind of stuck in this situation until there's something to bring more capacity. Yes, and it's not like our communities are not doing anything about it either. Like they've tried various uh, alternatives. Like uh, mostly they looked at solar power to supplement their uh, their power. Okay. Um, some have looked at wind, and others have tried other initiatives, but could not move on them because of maybe policy issues or whatever. Um, but. The way with the, with the with the community, um, the bottom line I tell people is when they're at capacity and if there's no other means of energy, reliable energy, there's a lot of power outages and it, it does compromise um, the daily lives of our people by way of water. Major infrastructure that's in the community could be compromised. Mm-hmm. There's uh, food that could also be compromised depending on the number of days of outages. And, uh, of course, the the health and safety of of the people. Overall, we already have a backlog of housing as it is. So some communities have built new houses and they just stand there. They can't connect them. So That must be so frustrating to see that these houses are ready, but they can't be lived in. Yeah. 
and uh, I, I've known at least four communities, maybe more in that similar situations where where uh, they build new houses and they just stand there for maybe a year and they can't connect them. And unless they swap, yeah. they swap power with an old house, but it doesn't address the, the housing situation at all. Yeah, I guess it comes back to the same thing. You're just swapping out. Yeah. One, one example um, that we had a situation with one community, there was like 42 families that are in need of housing. And because of their power situation, they could not build new houses. And if they built new houses, they were just standing there. But even those families couldn't move into them. I guess at that point, like you said in this case, these these 42 families, are they uh, are they going to live with, with other family members? Or are they, I guess they're still trying to stay within the community, but it, they're multiple generations in the same house? Yeah, we found out that maybe there's like three families that would live in one house. Wow. Like they're young families, it's the younger families that are impacted by this. Like if we look at the video that we did, there's one video that has an example of the kind of housing conditions that people live in. And that's because communities are trying to maximize the units that they have. You know, some of it should have been condemned already. Mm. It's just not a very good situation to be in. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. When it comes to the generators, when did they start being introduced to these communities and who controls them? Is it uh, the communities themselves or is it like, how is that doled out? Hmm. I'm trying to think uh, when our community got their generator would have been probably, um, it's either late 70s or early 80s. Wow. Okay. Okay. It was just recent that we got these generators. And as I understand it, there was a, an arrangement or an agreement between INAC and Hydro to be the kind of like the local distributor for these communities. And then uh, later on in the years, uh, some communities decided that they wanted to take on um, and own the local distribution. And out of the 17, I think six of those were independent power authorities. And they're not known to be uh, regulated uh, local distributors. And those are the ones now, in order for us to work with them, uh, they need to be kind of like a regulated entity and then we can connect them. Okay. The lifespan of these generators usually is uh, subject to how, how much expansion there is and how much uh, growth there is in the community. Okay. You may address your gaps, but it catches up very quickly. Now, obviously, the plan with Wate is to replace these generators and connect uh, these communities to the grid, which I think is going to be done in two phases. Can you explain a little bit what those are? When we started out, we went out and did our um, exploring of what it is we're mandated to do. And uh, we found out shortly after that, I think it was in 2011, it wasn't easy. It wasn't as easy as... um, Connecting the First Nations to the existing grid, we found out that the, the existing grid did not have a capacity to be able to connect the remote First Nations. So we had to go back and ask for an expanded mandate to look at the, the grid up to Pickle Lake and to look at how we can upgrade that in order for us to connect the remote First Nations. So that's how it became a phase one, phase two kind of uh, discussion. But it is all of one project, which is what came in. Yeah. So the grid 
that comes from Red Lake to Pickle Lake, as I understand it, is uh, 70 years old. Okay. And there's a lot of uh, frequent outages that caused some concerns with uh, one of our partners working within that area. Were you surprised when you saw that the the lines that are there right now couldn't even um, like take on these new communities? Was that a bit of a setback that you weren't expecting? Well, yeah, I just automatically thought that there was already enough power and that we were just going to kind of plug in and say, here we go, you know, but it wasn't that easy. So. <laughs> um, <laughs> Never is, right? No. no. <laughs> like, I, I mean, I don't profess to be an expert in this area. So it was, it's been a really, a real uh, learning curve. And right now, I think uh, there's construction being done for the Pikangicum line. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And is that uh, kind of outside these two phases or is that part of that first phase to kind of get that infrastructure in place before connecting these other remote communities? I think because of the extenuating uh, circumstances that Pikangicum was facing on their under power, there was a, a kind of a process outside of the project that the community's needs had to be addressed, and we helped with the, the negotiating process for that to get that line in because they just couldn't wait because they were at capacity. There's 117 17 kilometers for the Pikangicum line, and is it 1800 for the rest of the project overall? Yes. And this is all new construction. So how do you go about like figuring out where to put these lines? Well, it's been it's been a long process. I mean, we started working on this since 2008. First of all, we had to go in and talk to the people about the directives that we had received in getting that energy into the community and inform NHK people about the energy sector of Ontario and how complex it is. And we also had to do a lot of educating of the needs of our people and expectations based on their protocols to uh, government and also to uh, industry. And that alone took a a number of years. We also had to look at uh, how are we going to be able to put this project together since our communities don't have that kind of uh, capacity to become a transmission company. And then we had to look at ways and means of how then are we going to bring in a partnership who has a transmission license and uh, other aspects of project requirements from the regulatory perspective. So it, it took a lot of time. Um, we also uh, have done extensive engagement on the environmental assessment. We've also have done engagement on uh, talking with the communities on uh, the corridor. Mm-hmm. We had to take a look at the water body. We had to take a look at the, kind of like the high escrow land and the top topography of land and the cost and constructability. And then we went with those to each community and have gone into each community maybe, I would say, maybe five times okay. and, and talked to the people and say, and then they tell us. They, they have given us feedback in terms of where there's a, where we can put this line because a lot of it is their land users, their hunters, trappers, fishers, um, mm-hmm. and they tell us which area we can touch because of, the, of those interests and also some of the sensitive areas where they are harvesting, where there's uh, 
burial sites, sacred sites, those kind of things. So we've had those discussions for many years now already, and it's still ongoing. Yeah, I guess it's that interesting balance a little bit between, you know, trying to, to go forward with this project, but also bringing in that traditional knowledge. I mean, was that hard to, to kind of merge together? Yes, there's, there was a lot of uh, kind of like a balancing uh, act that we have to do in, in dealing with the protocols and expectations of our First Nations mm-hmm. with respect to where they stand, where they come from, and how we meet the, uh, the uh, legal and regulatory compliance requirements for this project. So there's a lot of balancing act that we have to do, and at the same time, we cannot compromise our people's uh, interests. This is a bit of an odd question, but has there been like a downside to, to the project so far? Have you gotten some negative feedback from community members who, I don't know, maybe not that they don't want this to come in, but have uh, different ideas for how it could be implemented? I think our communities have always had different ideas in terms of how they would like to have their energy. Okay. And they've tried to work on those. There's been lots of baseline studies and renewables that have happened. In terms of uh, looking at a, a sustainable, reliable energy, though, um, I think the need has been established where we require transmission lines. So there are still a lot of questions when it comes to the land, environment, water, animals. Um, our people have always been uh, the, the sacred uh, caregivers for the land in the area. That's that's who we are. We are connected to the land that way as indigenous people. I'm wondering how you uh, how you got involved in this personally. I think you're, you're originally from North Caribou Lake First Nation, uh, which is one of the communities that is part of Watanikiniap. Is that right? Yeah, when I was um, when I was in my community, our community was already experiencing uh, power problems and the reliability of the energy has always been difficult. So we tried to work out a, an initiative through there, which really didn't pan out. The only thing that we had done was, you know, to lobby for um, an upgrade to our diesel generators. I, I had a little bit of a taste in terms of what what those needs were and the requirements were when I was in leadership capacity. And then I began to work with the tribal council, uh, Shibuguma, back in uh, 2004, I think, and then and um, so it was a priority because a lot of the five communities I worked with were at capacity. So that was part of the driving force as to how I became involved in this project. Coming back a little bit, I guess, to the long-term effects of this project, Wate got uh, $1.6 billion funding earlier this year in March, I believe, mm-hmm. You know, which is obviously a huge sum, and people, I think, might be surprised at that amount of money. So how do you... Kind of tell them that it's worth the investment. First of all, the 20th century. So in terms of uh, providing reliability and uh, access to reliable energy, you know, we're still on diesel. And I think that one issue has to be addressed. Mm-hmm. And if we were to continue in this in status quo where we continue with diesel and whatever, then... It's a limited capacity in terms of what you can do with diesel. And I don't think there would be any opportunity for furthering any uh, economic and business uh, initiatives that our communities may want to pursue now or in the future. And we did a business study. Ontario did one 
And we did one where we've determined that staying status quo is not the answer. It, it is a huge cost that would be, um, it would be really high in 40 years if we were to continue. So we did have a business case that would support saving in the future as we did this. Okay. And by about a, a billion dollars savings. You know, it's not like uh, Canada just hand over $1.6 billion to the First Nations. That's not how that works. There is an arrangement that had been uh, negotiated, which unfortunately I can't disclose, but uh, there is an arrangement that we've negotiated in terms of how that money will be utilized. It's not Canada writing a check of $1.6 billion to the First Nations. It doesn't work that way. Uh, I found I find that a lot of people don't educate themselves on their own uh, existing uh, energy sector generally, like the mainstream society. Mm-hmm. So it, it's usually what they see and what they hear. That's what overtakes them, you know, and uh, without trying to understand how this works. So it it, it is, uh, in my view, a project. That will benefit not only our First Nations in addressing the needs, but it also will benefit Ontario and Canada in the long run. I think that's a good point you bring up. I mean, speaking from personal experience, I know I'm not as well versed in how energy production and grid systems and all of that work. And you mentioned a little bit earlier learning about those processes and educating both the communities, but also the governments and these uh, energy suppliers. I'm wondering if you can expand a little bit on that. So what I've learned is the processes that are there in the protocols of our First Nations do not always you know, work hand in hand. So how do we create a, an understanding and the ability to move forward? The other part of it is it was really, really quite uh, interesting for me anyway that uh, the industry and also particularly governments did not have that understanding of the need of, uh, of our communities and, and, and the extenuating circumstances the communities were at. So we, we had to do a lot of educating on that need, mm. but at the same time educating people about who we are as Indigenous people, our culture, our language, what do we mean by Aboriginal treaty rights and inherent rights? Those kind of things. Vice versa, we've had to go out and learn about all these many, 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 many acronyms within Ontario energy sector. <laughs> if you become a transmission company and we have to be able to translate all of that into the language so people can comprehend and understand it. So that's the kind of like the reciprocal uh, educating that had to be well we're still doing it uh, depending on what we who we deal with but you know it, it took a while to get that in place something else that i was wondering about and that you you alluded to earlier you know certain communities have already looked at different types of energy generation be it uh, wind water solar but again the capacity wasn't there so is this a little bit of a stepping stone towards certain communities also developing more renewable energy on their own Well, that's been a question that's been asked by a number of communities, but there is quite a number of uh, available, like renewables that could be available, particularly with run of the water. Okay. And there's lots of solar that's being used right now. So, yeah, there is that opportunity. Um, 
<laughs> this is a bit of a throwaway question, but it's something that I wasn't sure to ask or not. You said the the generators, anyways, in your experience, came into some of these communities in kind of like the late 70s, early 80s. I saw, I'm wondering what, and again, this shows my ignorance, but was there anything there before then, or there was just no electricity in these northern communities before? We had no electricity. We lived in, uh, in houses, obviously. Even housing uh, did not really come in until... Um, after the reserves were established. Okay. So, I mean, some of the communities did not get established not until early 70s. So, like, a lot of people had log cabins, and um, and that's how we lived. Uh, maybe can you just go over uh, the timeline for, for the project? Hoping for a shovel on the ground first quarter of 2019 for phase one. And the timelines have been established for late 2019 for phase two, and then hoping to have connected all the communities by 2023. That's uh, that's that's five years. That's actually not uh, <laughs> that's not bad. That's surprising. Yeah. Well, when I talk about timelines, and people look at me like you're crazy, as in they think it's too fast, or that it's going to take too long. I guess people who know how like who have that kind of experience, I may think that I'm. A little crazy and saying that we're going to do this in five years and building a line. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it shows how how pressing the need is, though. Right, it's a very slow progress right now, but as we reach each milestone, is exciting for our people. Given the fact that we've been at this, I always tell people it's not just ten years. Why can't you up to ten years? But our people have actually dealt with energy issues for twenty six years. <laughs> By the time we build the line, it's going to be, what, 15, 15 years? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. All right. So anyway, can you explain to me what I, I'm, you're, you're doing a report or you're, uh, is this a study thing? or? So I am I'm starting to launch a podcast, which is all about the north in the sense of obviously the territories, but also looking at northern provinces. Um, and I haven't, oh, yeah. I haven't launched yet, but uh, I'm thinking by the end of the month, everything will be up and running. So you just wanting to educate the, the southern part of the, about the north? Pretty much. I mean, I spent a little bit of time in Yellowknife a couple of years ago and was fascinated by the north and really enjoyed it. And I've wanted to go back ever since, but haven't been able to, unfortunately. But being in Ottawa here, I realized that there kind of are a lot of North-related resources. So I wanted to try and take advantage of that, but also obviously be in touch with people like yourself who who are living in the North. Uh, you know, it's kind of just to remind people that there's a whole <laughs> whole other part of the country that they may not think about. Yeah, that's a very good idea because it's uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of people that are ignorant of various facts living in their own country. Absolutely. You know, like it, it, sometimes it really amazes me that there are people who actually think that we should just uproot everybody in the community and move to Sunday Bay or, you know? Yeah. And, and that's, I, I just cannot imagine why people would say that. Oh, I think you're totally right. It's just, it's that ignorance. And it, I think it's that willful ignorance too, a little bit, right? Where people don't, yeah, sometimes. they don't want yeah. to learn and they don't put in the effort. So, I mean, I've, at the very least, I'm trying to be one resource that they can turn to. Yeah. Yeah. And there's lots of good people out there, you know, that mm-hmm. uh, 
that's another thing I found is that we can't just uh, leave status quo. We gotta educate people. We gotta help them understand it, and we gotta establish our own vision in terms of how we're gonna move forward. Because to me, that's part of the, the treaties that we have with the governments of the day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, and we have to start acting on it as Indigenous people. Anyway. Before I get into political hot water here, I better be quiet. No, no, that's that's totally fine. I appreciate appreciate that. (laughs) That about wraps up the first episode of 360 North. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I really appreciate it. Let me know what you learned in this episode. That is one of the main reasons that I do this show. And to do that, you can like the page on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and check us out on Google Play, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts, and leave a rating and review because that helps us find more listeners. And if you really feel like you can go the extra mile, check out our Patreon page. Of course, links to all of that are going to be in the show notes. Music for the show is created by Simon Léger, and the crisp sound that you hear is courtesy of JP and Pop-Up Podcasting. For now, I'll see you in a couple weeks with a new episode of 360 North with a young woman who's trying to save her people's language.